Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This episode features what's known as the Kharki election of 1900 in England and another update from the teenage schoolgirl called Frida, whose unique view of this war continues through her diary. It's also the point at which Lord Roberts makes another proclamation after his September the 1st declaration that the Transvaal Republic is now officially part of the Queen's Dominion. As we know, that was somewhat presumptuous, as the British did not control the territory within South Africa, only the main railway line and cities. The felt remains unconquered. Transvaal President Paul Kruger and his government had been pushed inexorably towards the Portuguese East African Territory and were now based in Nelspruit, only 85 kilometres from the border. The British under Lord Roberts were about to strike at the town and a meeting of Boer leaders, including President Steyn of the Free State, had decided that Kruger would have to make a sea journey to Europe in an effort to beef up diplomacy. It was also to protect Kruger. Had he been captured, it's clear that most of the Boers would have surrendered, so his leaving Africa would be both strategic and tactical. Kruger bowed to the decision, apparently, as the sentence of God, as he called it, and on the 11th of September, he bid farewell to his friends and his government at Nelspruit. Though he was really only taking leave for six months, most wondered if they'd ever see him again. He entrained for Delagoa Bay, and while the Portuguese government received him with full diplomatic honours as he awaited his ship to Europe, he must have realised that this was symbolic. It was almost a circle, which began with the Dutch colonising the Cape in the 1600s, leading to the Great Trek, the war, and now he was to return to the Netherlands amongst other European countries. The Boers had left the Cape starting in the late 18th century and pushed northwards into the interior of South Africa. That turned into a flood when the British took control of the colony after the French had been driven out. The French had seized the colony themselves for a short period in 1781 to 1783 in an action linked to the American War of Independence. By 1820, the decision by the British to send thousands of English speakers to the Eastern Cape and actions to ban slavery had convinced the Boers they were being turned into second-class citizens in their own country. So they took their goods and wagons and trekked northwards. Seventy years later, the symbol of Boer resistance against the English in the form of Paul Kruger was to take a ship in 1900 back to Europe. The irony of this centuries-long grand circle embittered Kruger, and descriptions at the time paint a man who was almost a ghost. Kruger himself called this period his Night of Affliction, where he seemed lost in a trance at times while he waited at Delagoa Bay, smoke curling from his Meerschaum pipe. As we have heard in the previous podcast, President Steyn also left Nelspruit with Louis Boerter and headed north, but his flight was not away from the British so much as back to battle. However, he couldn't head directly west to his home in the Orange Free State. He was forced to hug the mountains along with an escort of 250 men, a light baggage train and half a million pounds in gold. All the remaining Boer forces retired further along the railway eastwards towards the border town of Kamatiport. Here the best men, numbering 2,000, were divided into two parties under Louis Boerter and Ben Fulyun. They dragged their powerful long tom of field guns, the best wagons and stores away with them. It was with some emotion that the rest of the weapons and goods were blown up and then thrown into the Kamati River, which was infested with crocodiles. Other goods were set alight. 
But 3,000 other men who were regarded as poor soldiers were sent to the border of Portuguese East Africa, but the Portuguese were worried about these men entering their territory. It was on the 13th of September then that Lord Roberts announced that Kruger had fled to Delago Bay and formally declared that this war had now degenerated into a guerrilla war, which he said would only cause misery for the Boer people. And it was to cause misery. Roberts once again called on the commander to surrender, but Boerter and Fulhun ignored his proclamation and headed off directly north, away from the railway line, in an attempt to reach the high felt. That's where the cities of Pretoria and Johannesburg awaited. However, they weren't trying to liberate the towns. They were also getting away from the Lowfelt with its titsy fly infested plains, and uh, those plains also harboured malaria as well as other fevers. Lord Robert's emissaries in Delagoa Bay then passed on the information that Boerter and Fulhun were heading north, but instead Roberts decided he'd concentrate on the 3,000 men left behind. It didn't occur to him to listen properly to the intelligence reports, which indicated clearly the 3,000 were regarded as expendable by the Boers, as they were not top-notch soldiers. In fact, Boerter had purposefully left them there as a honeypot for Roberts to be lured, and instead of trying to destroy the 2,000 dangerous men under Boerter and Fulhun and Stain. These 3,000 left behind were also causing the Portuguese some embarrassment. They didn't want the international troops to retreat into their territory with British troops in tow. There was also the possibility that the large metal railway bridge over the Kamati River would be blown up to the detriment of regional trade. So the Portuguese went to work on President Paul Kruger, showering him with gifts and hospitality so that he eventually wrote to the men who awaited the British in Kamati Put and ordered them to protect the railway bridge. Portuguese emissaries then crossed the frontier border under flags and informed the Boers that should they surrender quietly, they would be well treated. The emissaries also hinted that should these men cause any difficulties, the Portuguese would give Lord Roberts permission to land troops in their rear at Delagoa Bay. Until this point, Portuguese authorities had warned the British not to land their army at this crucial port for fear of being attacked by the Boers. 2,700 men took up the Portuguese offer, but 300 others were made of sterner metal and slipped away north following Stain, Boerter and Fulhun. The British finally arrived at this border town of Kamatiport and found it a smouldering ruin. However, the Boers had not blown up 1,500 railway trucks full of ammunition, which the British seized. As the groups of Boers in the eastern Transvaal made their desperate bid for freedom, and the future frowned ominously on all others scattered across the two new colonies of the Transvaal and Free State, there remained some hope of support from the outside world. And ironically, this came from inside England itself. The political opposition to the war was squarely placed before that nation by the Queen, who signed a proclamation of her own at Balmoral on the 17th of September 1900. She dissolved Parliament and declared an election would be held the following month, in October. This was at the behest of Joseph Chamberlain. This was also to become known as the Kharki election which was one of the oddest and most venomous of all elections ever held in Britain. The stories of this election are similar to the kind of events that Americans experienced in the most recent election of Donald Trump, with physical assaults, rabid nationalism, a distant war, and bereft of intellectual discourse among the candidates who hated each other viscerally, roaming mobs committing violence, 
and a left and right debate dominated by echo chambers of false information, rumour and hateful outbursts. The only thing missing was Twitter. It was also dominated by conservatives who were linked to the arms industry milking the war both financially and politically. In some cases, these men had direct investments in defence manufacturing. I'll explain in a while. First, the newspaper editorials began to discuss how Britain should take harsher measures against the Boers, particularly the families who continued to act as logistic supplies and intelligence gatherers for their men in the field. The Times in August 1900, for example, had grumbled about the state of affairs, saying it couldn't go on indefinitely unless Roberts took sterner measures against the Boers. And they wrote, As in other matters, thundered the editor, we have pushed leniency to weakness. They wanted to treat the Boers as simple bandits and believed civilian population should be taught a lesson by retaliatory measures. Lord Lansdowne at the War Office agreed and sent a soothing message to Lord Roberts in South Africa saying he was glad what he called the kid gloves had come off. Remember the farm burnings had already begun and Roberts was under pressure to increase action against Boer civilians. It was believed the Anglo-Boer War was in its final stage and the Conservative government of the day asked the Queen to dissolve Parliament and declare a snap election for October. When the incumbent party is close to winning its war, what better political strategy than an election? This paradox was not apparent to those who asked the Queen. After all, it was the same government that had botched the entire war process from the start and now it believed the electorate would be fooled into thinking they were ultimately successful. How this thinking resonates to this day, doesn't it? The hospital scandals, the stories about faulty ammunition and rifles, the details of terrible losses in the battles thus far, they all stacked up against the ruling party. The Liberals, however, had been left flat on their backs, to use Thomas Packenham's phrase. They had divided into three warring parts. And remember, the Liberals were the opposition. Radicals, moderates and imperialists all competed, with leader Campbell Bannerman quite unable to unite them. Hence the need for the ruling party to spring the election before two wars had ended, one in South Africa and the other inside the opposition Liberal Party. Joseph Chamberlain led the Liberal Unionists, not to be confused with the Liberal Party, and he was part of Lord Salisbury's Conservative government as Secretary of State for the Colonies. He was behind a number of schemes to build up colonies in Asia, Africa and the West Indies, and was one of those responsible for deciding to go to war against the Boers. Chamberlain had wanted the elections earlier, in June 1900, just after Mafeking had been relieved. But Lord Salisbury disagreed, as the Boxer Rebellion had caught the British in another conflict the government had failed to manage. So, on the 18th of September, Queen Victoria dissolved Parliament. Ironically, it would be the last complete Parliament of her 64-year-long reign. The sudden declaration caught Bannerman completely off guard, and Liberal Chief Whip Herbert Gladstone was blunt. Bannerman, you see, had just returned from his summer holiday at the spa at Marienbad in what is now the Czech Republic, and Gladstone muttered darkly, The whole party waits for the smallest scrap of inspiration, but it is all smothered in Marienbad mud. The situation is grotesque. Our efforts to find a leader are about as successful as Tommy Atkins' efforts to shoot a boer. Earlier pacifists and those opposing the war had faced mobs. For example, in March and April, pro-Boer meetings had been broken up by jingoists who physically attacked speakers, leaving them bloodied, and in some cases, in hospital. 
The Irish nationalists had enjoyed the English humiliation at the hands of the Boers and constantly sniped about the cost of the war. The viciousness of politics where men and women far away from the smell of blood and cordite are the most vocal became the order of the day. Chamberlain had a plan for South Africa and it conformed to Cecil John Rhodes's vision where the region would be managed as a federation within the British Empire. In June 1900, for example, Chamberlain had hammered out a federation document with Australians and in July the Queen agreed it was a sort of blueprint for South Africa. This achievement was partly because of the Boer War. Australians fighting in South Africa had distinguished themselves and the emotion of common sacrifice led to much magnanimity between the Australians and the British government. The Liberal opposition exploded at the news of the election. First they said the country had to deal with Chamberlain's war, now they had to deal with Chamberlain's election. In the growing political unease, this election would be less about a single issue and more about a single man. As with the election of Donald Trump in the USA, a single man can be the focus of love and hate, while issues of war are more diffuse and obtuse. A biography of Chamberlain described this moment as The former abuse aimed at the controversial leader was like the blast of hot air from the desert. Now his ordeal was like an avalanche of mud. Liberal Party loathing went to extremes. Chamberlain popped up in Oldham to support Winston Churchill's bid at winning his first seat in Parliament, which was successful, by the way, but he was viscerally hated by the left. Chamberlain's ethical problems were compounded by the fact that his family owned a small arms factory which sold material to the government to be used in the Boer War. Chamberlain denied any conflict of interest, saying he'd sold the shares before entering government. But Lloyd George, one of the firebrand liberal leaders, had unearthed unfortunate facts. Hoskin and Son, for example, were contractors for the Admiralty, and the shareholders were exclusively Chamberlain's, including Joseph's sons one of whom held a ministerial post connected with the same admiralty. The back and forth between these two, Lloyd George and Joseph Chamberlain, led to repercussions. George had to remove his young son from school, for example, to spare him from the insults by other pupils and possible physical violence. So we'll now turn our gaze back to South Africa and leave these politicians to machinate and conspire against each other. The Kharkiv election was going to be a short, sharp affair, gory in its own way, but that's for future podcasts. Frieda Schlossberg and her family had been living on the small holding in Bronkospreit, which is east of the capital, Pretoria, when the war began. Her father had tried to keep his children away from the war, but it wasn't possible, and they'd ended up at the Ronostokop, which was a bit like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. They had been robbed by mercenaries, shelled by the British, shot at by the Boers, and faced the daily challenge of finding food. Freda was almost 15 by this time and had kept a diary of the events of the war and her views of the conflict. As I've described in episodes from the start of the series, her unique observations have been used by many historians to track the effect of the Anglo-Boer War on civilians and how chaos catches all when war begins. So Freda describes an incident which took place between the 13th and 18th of September 1900. Her brother Joseph had returned to the family small holding in Bronkospreit, but no one had heard anything from the young man for weeks. Mr. Schlossberg, the old man, was growing more desperate and wanted information about his son. His other son, Robert, then elected to travel back to the small holding, but was unable to, as there were restrictions on movement. Eventually, Robert managed to get permission and packed a small bag, then leapt on his bicycle for the two-day trip. 
Frieda explains. On reaching the small hill overlooking Bronkospreit, he saw a number of men. The light of the dying sun was against them, and he could not distinguish whether they were Boers or British. Suddenly he noticed that the bushes lining the side of the road were filled with Boers. He was surprised they had not stopped him for questioning, but he cycled on without heeding them. Robert arrived at a farm close to Bronkospreit and was told that the men he'd seen in the distance were actually British soldiers, and the Boers he'd just passed had been involved in a skirmish with them and were retreating. So Robert was trapped. He could not get into the town and had no idea about the condition of his brother. Instead, he decided to turn around and cycle back to Ronostokop. Frieda then explains what happened next. Suddenly, bullets began flying around him. He jumped off his bicycle and dived into a sluit, that's a small drain, at the side of the road. Here he lay motionless for a half hour as bullets passed over his head. When the firing ceased, he saw British soldiers who must have been the ones firing at him. He realized that the British had mistaken him for a Boer dispatch rider. I wonder how anyone feels when lying underneath a rain of bullets. I'm sure one feels awfully queer. An understatement to be sure. But the family did get news that Joseph was safe. They were in an odd position and one repeated up and down South Africa. Brother Joseph in Bronkospreit, living under British control, and the rest of the family in the Ronostokop, living under Boer control. We'll leave our narrators at this point and return next week for more eyewitness reports and the increased political pressure and diplomacy. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the visibility on the platform and you can contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. Oh, bring me back to the old